And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, my guest is journalist, host of Studio 10 and editor-at-large at news.com.au, Mr. Joe Hildebrand. Sounds nice, doesn't it? <laughs> Hi, Rach. How are you? <laughs> I am great. Let Excellent. us, before we, we, before we go back to the beginning of your yes. career... What the F is an editor-at-large? Is this like the great position that you get to be in after you've proved yourself, which essentially means you can write what you want and you can be at large, i.e. not in the office? I think it's more for people who they don't really know what to do with. So they say, look, we're basically just going to make you a reporter, but we'll call you... An editor <laughs> right. at large, so you still think that you're important. Right. It sounds so kind of snazzy. The only two professions that they ever use at large in relation to is editor and criminals. <laughs> That's true. So the only other people who are at large are, are people crims. who are on the run from the police. In fact, literally. maybe they should jazz up the term and it should be editor on the lamb. Oh, that's nice. That's, that's I think nice. That, that or maybe work. that could just have been the term say, alleged editor. <laughs> yeah. I like you know? this. These it's are never, all, we're just never workshopping. Been proven. <laughs> it's never been proven. I would love to go right back to the beginning of your career and work out how the hell you ended <laughs> up on our wrong. TV screens. <laughs> how did how this did mess this happen? happen? Where did the nation You. That's it. You grew up in Melbourne. Yes. What did you want to be when you were little? Was this where you wanted to be? No, I wanted to be a rock and roll star. And I am still a a very talented singer-songwriter. Are you lying to my face? No, no. I'm genuinely incredibly talented. But um, I was better at the piano than I was at the guitar. And that's obviously a disadvantage. I think in in musical terms, it probably qualifies as a disability. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Elton John and Billy Joel have done all right with it. And those spots are already taken. (laughs) How many many others are there? In the the whole history of humankind, Mm. the UK has thrown up one, the US has thrown up one, and what am I going to be? The next Paul Grabowski? <laughs> I mean, so Richard, who's the Richard? Which one's the one on the keys? Richard Clayderman or Richard? Yeah, Richard yeah. Clayderman. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The fact that you couldn't remember his name tells you everything you need to know. So there was that. And then I just got older and older. So then I got too old to be a rock and roll star. So I was going to have to be a country music star. So um, wait, wait, wait. Are you genuinely musically talented? Yeah, I'm a musical genius. No, no, no. <laughs> Is this just Joe Hill, the yes. brand's hyperbole, or no. you're re- you are really good? Oh, you should see me on the keys. I oh can't, man, I can't tell you. Jerry mind. Lee Lewis, look like your mother. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, I was, I was, I was. Uh, um, oh. uh, I always thought I was going to be a musician. I never knew but that. Unbelievably, I just didn't have the discipline for it. So, oh. if you can imagine someone who's not disciplined enough to even be a musician. <laughs> That gives you an idea of just how dysfunctional my life is. You were destined to be an editor on the lamb. Yeah. <laughs> that's so. that's what you were always gonna grow up to be. So what did you when did you drop the musical dreams? How old were you when you were like, Oh, this isn't going to be a career? Hey, what do you mean drop them? Okay, this is right. just my day job. Okay, okay by is, night you are in um, spandex on stage yeah, at your well, local it just, RSL. It just kind of happened. I did all, I always always loved writing. I also loved Superman and I figured if I couldn't fly, then I might as well be Clark Kent. Yep. Um, <laughs> and when I got to uni, I left home when I was 17. Uh, we grew up in Dandenong, which is sort of way out um, on the fringe of Melbourne, a bit of a rough and tumble suburb. And all I wanted was just to get to the city, just to get to, to uni and just all those big bright lights and just get wasted and... <laughs> 
uh, finally be cool because <laughs> it's fair to say that Dandenong High School, for all its many benefits, was probably not the best vehicle for someone like me. Especially not when you're playing the piano. The coolest guy. That's right. There's a lot of, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things that were um, that were cool at Dandenong High School, but playing the piano and singing in the school choir <laughs> were definitely not two of them. Yep. And so I got to uni, um, did the full share house cliche and smoked my own body weight in bongs, um, <laughs> which I'm not sure if you're familiar with the weight of marijuana, but that's a very hard thing to do. <laughs> yep. I feel very bad now that I sort of wasted so much time having a good time, but I loved everything about it and I loved the politics and I loved doing the student paper there and I ended up becoming one of the editors of the student paper. So you Melbourne were doing so, you were doing arts there? Yes. You don't have to say it with that tone of voice. <laughs> you were doing arts there. Like you just assumed. <laughs> I could have, how do you know I wasn't doing medicine? How do you know I wasn't doing, you know, economics slash science? Because, because you were smoking your body weight in bongs. Oh, yeah, that's right. I gave that away, <laughs> didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> so where did the interest in, in the uni paper come from? Did you just sort of see it and go, I might give that a crack? Like almost everything that's happened in my life, and this is why I'm just such a terrible role model for young people, but it was just something that just seemed to happen. It was almost like it just had its own gravitational pull and you had to run for election in those. So you actually had to run to be elected for that role. So it was kind of a political role. And so I did all those things, but I can never remember actually going out of my way to do all those things. Mm. It just it was almost a bit like falling in love or catching someone's eye across a, a crowded room. Like it just, I sort of did it because it never occurred to me not to do it. Mm. So it was all very, God, I hate the word organic, but I'm just going to say it. It was all just sort of very organic. It just happened. It was kind of cosmic, man. But don't you feel when you look back at your life at uni with those kind of things where you got involved, I think as the adult now that I am, I go, God, that's a lot of effort. But at the time, it didn't seem like No, but that's right. And that's, and that's why I think, you know, for all the crap that I delight in hanging on young people, and really the only benefit of being old is hanging shit on young people. <laughs> Unis, certainly in those days, I'm not sure if it's so much the case anymore where you have to be either ridiculously uh, rich or have a ridiculously high entry score to get into university. So they kind of, people seem to sort of, take them a lot more seriously mm. <laughs> yeah, you know there's no room to drop out of class and smoke bongs these days because your parents will kill you and ask yeah. for their money back so when i was there when it was uh, taxpayer funded i come from a single mom and you know who felt i felt like i was living on the edge of the world like on the you know barely on the same planet as melbourne uni which is the one i went to and then just got there and the whole thing just opened up like a fan and i was like it just oh my god i want it all i want it all and i want it now so I just sort of delighted in it and I just threw myself into everything with equal abandon and an equal lack of judgment and just ate up as much as I possibly could. And when I say everything, I mean everything except the actual coursework. <laughs> yeah. so the, one, the one thing I didn't do at uni was go to any classes, but everything else, you know, the theatre, the politics, the media, the writing, the people, all that stuff, I just did it all and did it all voraciously. Where and did, it didn't feel like work. It where did the like thing work. about politics and your interest there come from? Um, well, I'd always been, you know, I was raised by a single mum who um, was also a teacher. So, you know, it's pretty obvious that I was unlikely to, you know, end up voting for the Liberal Party. I've become much more moderate <laughs> and reasonable now. <laughs> I, th I think it was all part of that. It was coming from a, a poor suburb feeling like you're very much on the outside 
that the world wasn't made for you, that the world was actually, you know, that the system was there to lock you out and you'd never get into it. And I felt that all the way through, even when I was at Melbourne Uni and not many people were like me, like very few people. Um, what do you mean like you? Oh, most of the people had come from sort of uh, private schools and had had much sort of, I suppose, just much more familiar with just everything. Like even just going out to a restaurant or whatever. I've never really, I'd never really been to a restaurant before, I don't think, before mm. I sort of went there. I, and I, I sort of just didn't know what to do. Um, I had a very important relationship with someone who came from a well-off, powerful, influential family. And, um, and for absolutely no reason whatsoever and no fault of theirs, I was kind of... Like that just reinforced that they were part of this um, exclusive class system that was all designed to lock me out and that I was this outsider. And it wasn't almost until years later that I realized I was actually in it the whole time. Like, yeah. In fact, I had gotten in. In fact, we did have, and one of the things I love about Australia is we have we did have this incredible, and do still, but not quite as much, you know, this principle of egalitarianism and an education system in particular in which... Yes, there is certainly uh, a lot of bias to people with money and um, and and connections, but you know it is a place where anyone with you know a bit of moxie and a bit of smarts can get in, and and it is a country where you, you can succeed from all all backgrounds, and I think that is fantastic. But at the time, I was just a bit of resentful <laughs> little socialist who wanted to tear down the the system that Everyone's... had actually that had actually embraced me. That yeah, I was actually in the middle of. Uh, celebrating. I feel like that happens a lot at university and then when you get out in the real world and you start yeah. to realise, oh, I can't just like not wash my clothes and, you know, live on $5 a year. <laughs> like I do have to get, I have to engage in capitalism in some way and it's maybe not as evil as I thought it was. Well, that's, and... <laughs> that's, that's right. The problem with capitalism is that um, sooner or later you meet people within it and you realise they're actually not all monsters yeah. Yeah. and they're not all going around trying to kill babies and stomp on I also used uh, to find the interesting thing because I spent a lot of time at university with theatre kids and really, really interesting, odd characters. Mm. And, you know, you do get that sense of like, oh, gosh, those those investment bankers over there would be wankers. But then I got to the stage, I was like, actually, you guys in the theatre crowd are really exclusive and you don't, like, That's you're really right. hard to be around. Like, any time I try to introduce a new person right. to you, you're really horrible to them. But those investment bankers over there are like, hey, come and have a drink with yeah. us. Yeah, you know? That's right. Yeah, someone once said to me, said that uh, left-wing politics would be the most attractive ideology in the world if it wasn't for left-wingers. <laughs> exactly. Right? So, so there's this sense that um, <laughs> the fact that it's often so elitist and removed from yes. the people that they're purporting to represent. Totally. And it's, it seems to me now that often left-wing politics is less and less about actual poor people and disadvantaged people and more and more about rich people who uh, feel like they have some sort of oppression that yeah. had been hitherto undiscovered. Did you find that when you started writing for the uni paper that there was a bit of natural writing talent there? Did you sort of take to it well and easily? Yeah, look, it, it did feel very natural. A lot of it was just rants. Um, one editorial <laughs> I did was um, it was just the words, I hate Jeff, written over and over and over again for <laughs> 500 words. <laughs> Someone actually uh, uncovered uh, years later when I was working at the Daily Telegraph and, uh, <laughs> and said, is this still your political position? I said, well, it's obviously uh, mellowed My views have moderated slightly <laughs> since then. But I always wanted to make it funny. I always mm. wanted to make that. And I think the best part of being young is that you can be funny, you can mock things, you can be irreverent. And the people who had edited um, the Sydney Uni newspaper the year before we took over, we used to get 
it's we used to get Oni Swart, the Sydney Uni paper, oh, yeah. sent to us um, every week or two or whenever it was it came out. And I read it and I thought, these guys are just, ama- this is really funny. They took the piss out of everything. They said things that perhaps even I sort of wouldn't dare. And I thought, I want to be like them. I want to write like them. And it just so happened, as it turned out years later, that that was the year that The Chaser had edited on his Swart. And that was how they started out. But they were a huge influence. I remember one of the, the pieces they had in the paper. It was just hilarious. They had um, the back page. It was sort of the weekly, the weekly debate, the week weekly sort of hot topic you know and it mm. had two different points of view of the talking heads and the topic was old people landfill or <laughs> part of society <laughs> uh, so if you could do that that's what i wanted to that's do. awesome so how did so how did the move to sydney happen did is that because you got a cadetship i was uh, just sort of belatedly finishing off my arts degree mm. um and realising that I was completely screwed, all my friends had sort of, you know, moved on to whatever. And I realised I, I didn't actually even have a plan in place. I was applying for anything at all and just not getting any response. And I uh, eventually got tipped off about a cadetship at AAP, but then didn't hear anything. And I went with a friend of mine to visit an, an old uni friend in Tasmania. We somehow managed to scrape together a couple of hundred bucks, I think. And because I was waiting on any call from any job, I was so desperate. Um, I borrowed my mum's special friend, Don's uh, mobile phone, which was a giant brick that had the flip out thing. He was the only person we knew who had a mobile phone. So I brought that down, had the pull-out antenna and everything. I was sort of carrying around. So you couldn't on actually the belt. walk with it in your pocket. I was too ashamed to have it on my belt. Oh, you wouldn't clip it on your belt? I didn't, want to be I didn't want to be a member of the bourgeoisie, Rachel. I was still proud. So I brought a handbag to carry it in. <laughs> I had a shoulder strap. Right. <laughs> <coughs> and um, the, day, the first day there, I get a phone call from my mum, who's completely mad, and said, oh, you got a call about a job. Uh, I said, oh, great. Who was it? And she said, um, uh, well, that's the thing. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I said, right, well, who was the person? What was the name of the person who called you? She goes, oh, I missed his surname. Oh, God, mum, okay, you're fired. Right. <laughs> well, what was his first name? She goes, um, I think it was John. And anyway, so I took, you know, even before I got my first job in journalism, I had to do some investigative journalism <laughs> to find out who the hell I was meant to call. Uh, but I eventually um, got back to them and I was like, oh, my God, we've got to get back to... Melbourne. So I had to borrow some money from um, some friends' parents to pay for a plane ticket to get back. Went back pretty much the day after I'd arrived. Had to borrow my uncle's suit and then someone else's shirt and get my first ever store-bought haircut. Um, Who was a, doing your hair before? It's probably best we don't go into it. But there were a lot of <laughs> unattractive years. <laughs> right. Were you doing your own hair? Uh, no, my, my mother was. <laughs> Okay. Or if I was lucky, my, my, my father. Uh, and then, yes, I did do my own hair for a while and it, it did not end well. Okay, um, right. Well, it must have been a big day for you going in to I get know, your first it was, it was a very It was a very big day. It was, um, uh, and it's fair to say, even professionally done, my hair did not look much better. <laughs> You've and come a long way now, though, I will say, because when we first met, it was still a moppy, yes. like you still look like you'd just come off campus, to be frank. Mm. But now you seem to have gone a more sort of Chris Isaac kind of... Now gone corporate, man. You have gone. Out, yeah, you have. Part of the machine. No, I think it's a good thing. So did you... Was it pretty clear you'd gotten the job from the when, from the interview? Did the interview go well? Uh, look, I, th- I thought it went well myself, but I actually went in there looking like Lurch uh, because <laughs> the, the shirt didn't fit, the suit didn't fit. The suit was too small and the shirt was too big. So 
the cuffs of the shirt sort of came off over the top of my hands <laughs> while the, the sleeves of the, the suit jacket were sort of up around my elbows. Right. Um, you could see my ankles from space. <laughs> like I just looked just horrendously awkward. I think ask, after asking all the usual questions, they said, oh, is there anything else you'd like to, um, to show us? And I said, oh, yes, there is one thing. And I pulled out this piece I'd done where I'd got Jeff Kennett's head and put it on Michael Jackson's body um, <laughs> with Michael Jackson's black hair sort of curling down, cascading over his face. And underneath in sort of red scrawled writing, it just said, who's bad? <laughs> and so I went <laughs> That is so, so much effort the, for not a great payoff. <laughs> right. And so when um the good burgers at AAP, they just looked at each other <laughs> and then sort of looked at me and then looked at each other again and just sort of I found out later that um that, that year they were only going to offer three cadetships, but they decided to offer they'd already decided on the three people and I was the sort of last person through the door because I was literally just getting off the plane from Tasmania and rushing in on borrowed money and borrowed time. So uh, Jeff Jackson's got you over the line. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> and they said they, they said they decided to make it four and give it four to me. And I said, why? And they said, well, we don't really know. <laughs> so we just kind of didn't really know what else to do with you. There's something about you. I'm not sure if they sort of wanted me or they, they felt like they had to sort of, you know, institutionalize me to keep <laughs> to keep maybe me safe from the world and the the rest of the world safe from me so we better just take him it's off probably the market for the best. he could be a threat he could be if a threat he pulls that there. jeff poster out in any other interview he's going right. he's going to be That's in all right. sorts of trouble did you take to it immediately on your first day were you like this is i'm where i, I want to be yes i absolutely right. loved it was that a moment of, oh, shit, I didn't know what I was going to do and now all of a sudden like a light bulb's clicked on? No, look, again, it sort of felt like it was something I'd always wanted to do and I'd already braced myself for not being able to do it, if you like. So like, like I said, I was doing sort of, you know, going for layout jobs or, you know, mm. sub-editing at the, the local paper. So it was just sort of anything. I wasn't getting – I don't think I got a single callback even um, and I was sending off CVs and – Photoshop posters. And Photoshop and posters to everybody. <laughs> and so I couldn't believe my luck to be getting this this job. But also at the same time, it just felt incredibly right. Like it just felt absolutely normal. What was the job? What would, did the job entail? Uh, look, it was a cadetship uh, back in the day. It was probably one of the last good old-fashioned journalism cadetships where you would literally do anything, everything and, ev- and anything. You'd be rotated through all the bureaus. So... You'd do um, just general reporting. You'd do a bit of time in the press gallery. You'd do sport reporting. You'd do finance reporting, court reporting. And it was said to be, and it certainly was for my money, the, the best cadetship in the Australian media because it did just teach you to do everything. And it taught you to write very fast. It was a wire service. So you were constantly covering breaking news. There were no um, airs and graces. There was no pretense about it. Um, just get out your oh, story. <laughs> That's right. It was simply go to this place, find out what this person says, put it in a story, put the most exciting bits up the top, back up every assertion with a quote, just real bread and butter stuff, the who, what, where, when and why. Was it sort of 90% learn on the job, come back and realise what you yeah, stuffed for me, up? Yeah, for me it was. I think the others had done journalism degrees, so right. they'd sort of been told sort of what to do. But I had absolutely no idea what to do. So did you find you got harsh feedback in the early days? I remember that the th- uh, th- three of us uh, were all sitting around, one sort of computer terminal, all trying to write 
what would have been maybe a 150 word news story mm. about the Queen coming to town and we were so energetically debating whether or not you could start a sentence with the word and. <laughs> I was, of course, absolutely adamant that, that this was a, a crime against God and um, I was reliably informed by my new colleagues that, in fact, in the world of journalism, it was acceptable. And sure enough, they were completely correct. This is one of the great revelations for me yeah. going and studying journalism, that you can, yep. in fact, start a yep. sentence with and right. or but. And you, can, and you also do not need the word that as many times as you think you do. Absolutely. In fact, um, uh, no less a person than Joe Tripodi, I believe, so there is some good in him, uh, <laughs> once uh, told me that the word that was almost completely and utterly redundant. You yes. could remove it from the English language altogether. And everyone would be much better If off. you've never heard that before, next time you write a piece of anything, read through it, take out all the that's, and you'll realise they're completely unnecessary. Yep. It changed my entire life, just yep. that one that, piece of knowledge. That's right, that's right. So who, who says that, um, that journalism is only a force for harm? <laughs> Exactly. So, what were you deeply? Were you just covering any story at all? Was that like a year-long cadetship? They they moved you through all those things, and then where did you move after that? Yeah, so it was a year-long cadetship. Um, so they moved you through uh, general news, um, which would include court reporting and, and politics, finance, where you learn how to report on all the markets, and someone explained to me how dollar and bonds work, which forgot that straight away immediately but apparently knew at the time sport reporting where i um managed to get i think a a crate of baked beans sent over to india for shane warne during a tour but i don't think warney ever got them oh and was there uh, a reason uh the reason was this well this was actually my first experience of what some unkind people might call fake news but what i would call (laughs) good old-fashioned crusading journalism (laughs) where um I was trying to figure out if it was in the middle. Of, there was a big um, hoo-ha about Shane Warne bringing baked beans to eat uh, oh. during the Australian team's tour of India because he didn't like the local food there, which I have to say I completely understand, being quite a fussy eater myself. Yeah. So uh, when he was going there the next time, I tried to set up a bidding war. And I should say this violates absolutely every principle that Australian Associated Press yeah. has, which is that... It, reports only the news that has happened as it's happened in a fair, impartial and balanced way. But I thought I would try and set up a bidding war for who got to supply Warney's baked beans. And so I rang up Heinz and said, oh, you know, will you provide baked beans for Shane Warne? And they said, no, I've never heard. This is the first I've heard about it. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, really? It's funny because SPC said that they were keen... <laughs> And I'm sure you can guess the rest. But I was told afterwards, I'm not actually sure what did happen, but um, I was told afterwards, I don't know if this is true, that somehow a case of baked beans was in fact sent to India. I'm not sure whether Heinz or SPC It's still floating around somewhere. No one's claimed it. It's still floating somewhere (laughs) somewhere between Delhi and Madras. (laughs) Can you explain to, to me about The Wire? Right, because the AAP is where a lot of publications get their news from, right? So your job is to just literally spew out little blurbs that are essentially the news and the facts. It's not much uh, in addition to that. And then news services, radio news, papers and that will take that kind of news and and use that, right? That's right, yeah. It's it's basically just writing very straightforward news stories that – can be used by any other media organisation. So we'd actually write 
both print versions and uh, broadcast versions. Right. So, um, so who, what is The Wire? Like, the Wire? Okay, The Wire. <laughs> is, it a, is it a buzzing box in the corner that like spews out the music? The Wire got its name from, I believe, in the very early days when it was actually the, the Telegraph Wire. And it was so expensive to get The Wire laid down to Australia, all the different news organisations, instead of saying, well, we're all just getting the same information from wherever anyway it's crazy for us all to be paying for it separately why don't we all just you know we'll all pay a bit each and we'll pay someone to get the stories from the wire and then we can just all use that copy so the source is all of those individual news organizations that's right so aap itself is actually owned pretty much half by news corp and half by fairfax um, so your job was also resp- you were responsible for going and sourcing the news that's right so for example if john howard's giving a press conference or there's a court case or whatever in open court that everyone knows about. In a sense, there's no point both the Telegraph and the Herald being at the same court case or at the same press conference when those reporters could be out there doing their own thing and trying to beat each other, Sam and Ralph style. Right. Um, we'll just send the, um, the AAP person can just be there. They can say whatever happened at the press conference, write a story about it, send it to the Herald and the Telegraph, and, and you're done. Their editors, their reporters can just uh, use that story or pluck out whatever bits they want. So is there so a sort of reporter's reporter? But is there a pressure there because you are like the source material, right? So you have to get it right. Have you ever uh, stuffed anything up? Oh God, yes. Right, <laughs> is it? What are yeah. the consequences of that? Because you're going right to this. That's why I've always liked to be the person like 17 points removed who's just having to <laughs> give an opinion about it, yeah, not yeah, anybody yeah, yeah. who's like going to have anybody say, well, you didn't get the facts wrong. It's like, it's not my job to do the facts. Well, that's right. Well, that's why I am where I am now. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's like, it's like any job with journalism. Any journalism at the coalface, you've got to try and get the facts right. And even at the, the best of times, that's a very hard thing to do. I mean... When you think about it, it is an extraordinary thing to ask of someone to be thrust in uh, any kind of situation, be it a crime scene, be it uh, a session of parliament, be it a complex story about electricity privatisation. Every other player in each of those situations is going to be an expert in their field. And you could have the the one journo who might just be fresh out of, say, for example, I don't know, an arts degree... Um, who's sent to all these things, often a couple or more in a single day and have to be an expert in those things instantly, understand it enough to know what's happening and then translate that into a story that can make any person out there pick that up because that is the benchmark. Anyone who knows how to read is supposed to be able to pick up your story, whatever you write, and know exactly what is going on Mm. where... An hour before it even happening, you might have had absolutely no idea whatsoever who that person was, how a crime scene might operate, who the Prime Minister of Fiji was. Is that terrifying? Who the guy who just overthrew him in a coup is (laughs) and where he's come from. And suddenly you're having to... uh, It's terrifying, but it's exhilarating at the same time. Do you now, because of course you are one of the hosts of Studio 10 and there is, I've done the show with you a number of times and there is always a sense of let's defer to Joe to find out more information. (laughs) You know, you have become a bit of an oracle in some ways where you do know a lot about a lot of different things. So surely that has, I mean, now you're kind of reaping the benefits of that early experience and an experience that has then 
gone over many years, but it does sort of make you able to understand and digest a lot of different things that maybe you're not an expert in, but you can. <laughs> That's right. You, I, think, I think just because I'm a skinny guy with glasses, yes, look like a you look the part. <laughs> Carl Sanderlands uh, <laughs> once described me as um, that guy who looks like he does a lot of crosswords. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've got that on a business card or that something. That is actually my official Twitter profile, <laughs> believe it or not. You could that. That's good. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it does, you know, I think the phrase, and I don't think this is meant as a compliment, but the phrase, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. So yes. I know very little about a lot of things, but I suppose what it does give you is a sense, an overarching sense of how things work and the way powerful people and powerful institutions interact with each other. And also just, I'm a big fan of Dennis DeNudo and the castles, just sort of the vibe, mm. the sort of how people operate and how they interact with each other instinctively. And I think if you've been a journo for a while, you know, if you've rubbed shoulders with a few cops and a few pollies and a few other journos, you very quickly get not only a healthy cynicism, but also just an idea of the way people do business the way that deals are made and also how they play with each other and play against each other as well. You spent time in the press gallery too, did you not? Uh, in the New South Wales press gallery. I spent right. a long time and, um, and did a lot of federal reporting as well, but I wasn't technically in the press gallery. In Canberra. That, I mean, that too, I think, is super useful, especially when you're commenting on things because it's pretty amazing and I count myself in this and I've been asked a million times to comment on political matters, but our understanding of really the inner workings of politics Mm. and how things work are pretty minimal. Yeah, that's right. And I think that the the press gallery is a really good example of sort of what I was talking about earlier where obviously you have specialist reporters who are quite expert in their fields, even if they're not professionally qualified in their fields we're all still Mm. sort of reporters but crime reporters who know a lot about crime maybe not as much as detectives but (laughs) yeah and again so you'll have press gallery reporters who are extremely knowledgeable about politics who are have often been involved in politics longer than the politicians themselves and so they do know how it all works and that is wonderful because they have the analysis and the insight but the other thing that happens and we've seen it happen a lot recently is that there's also a sort of a bit of Stockholm syndrome as well. And so you end up being, and I certainly felt this and, and it certainly happened to me, you end up becoming too close to the politicians you're meant to be reporting on and holding to account and it may be too sympathetic. But also more than that, you, you become sort of isolated from, it's very easy for a bunch of people all working in the same field who have a similar background, um, a similar class, I'm still a bit of a socialist in that way, Mm. with similar interests and a similar sort of nuanced understanding or love of politics or whatever it may be, all sitting around over dinner and a couple of bottles of wine saying what a great idea something is or how fantastic a policy might be and, and then have that completely and utterly blown apart by how it then plays out in the the big bad world. And so I suppose in some circumstances, one of the things I always say to journalists is always ask young kids at uni who are doing journalism or whatever, just always ask the stupid questions. Like, and this is something I was terrible at because I'd try to pretend that I knew what I was talking about, blah, blah, blah. And so in a sense, you're just kind of the the emissary of the public. So if the public doesn't understand something, if the person, if whoever is going to read your article, if they don't understand it, your job is completely and utterly redundant and if you can't put yourself in their shoes 
then there's no point sitting around at dinner clinking glasses and saying how clever are we (laughs) did you have you jumped from job to job to job because you've looked for the next opportunity or have you been found or has it been a mix no i'm 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 terrible at that no almost always i've just sort of been found i've just gone along with whatever anyone's told me to do so i did i i did jump ship from aap to the telegraph but again, that was sort of after I met David Pemberthy at the New South, in the New South Wales Press Gallery and I just loved him. I just had the biggest man crush on him. <laughs> and I just wanted to, you know, it's like the song, I want to be just like you. <laughs> so whatever he did, I wanted to do. And, and basically he brought me over. And then I've, I've pretty much been in the Telegraph ever since. I've been there from the Telegraph to um, news.com.au, which is all part of the same family. What about the shift to the TV and the radio and that kind of stuff? Because you were doing a lot of talking head stuff and opinion and yeah, things. I just I, yeah, I just say yes to whatever. I just you know I'm a bit like Bart in the Simpsons episode where he steals a car and um, <laughs> yeah. takes them to the World's Fair that doesn't exist. Yeah, and the kids are in the back going, Bart, can we stop and get an ice cream? Yes. <laughs> Bart, can we pick up that hitchhiker? Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, people say, Joe, can you? Yes. Where was the very first time you went on telly? I think my first TV appearance is probably the most ironic one in televisual history where I was appearing just after a debate between uh, Morris Yemmer and Peter Debnam. Thrilling. And they just finished and they'd say, and, uh, and the host threw to me and said, and uh, Joe, what did, what did you think of uh, Peter Debnam's performance? And I said, I th- th- think it was qu- quite a n- 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 nervous start from p- 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 Peter d- 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 um, <laughs> You weren't you you weren't comfy on I was screen. Probably, I was probably a bit too comfortable. Um, I just sort of it was one of those moments where I just sort of um, forgotten to talk. Forgotten how to talk. I didn't know how to, <laughs> that can um, be helpful how, when how, the camera's how on. How do words get made <laughs> again? Was kind of but obviously you didn't stuff it up so badly that nobody asked you back. No, that's right. Um, it almost begs the question, what do you have to do to get kicked off Australian television? Yeah, yeah. I've tried everything. It <laughs> still doesn't work. And then, yeah, people keep asking. And I've, I've always been terrible at saying no to people. Well, saying yes then got you to the point where you were doing Studio 10, Drive on Triple M and Daily oh, Telly God, stuff. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes, that was a big year. That and was had a newborn, and had a newborn. Baby. Was yeah. that a moment where you just thought, "I need to give up the Bart routine and start saying no to the ice creams and the hitchhikers"? Yeah, I think I think it was certainly illustrative of um, if you're going to do something, it's probably a good idea to just pick one thing and try to do it really well, instead of as has been my lifelong habit of picking a whole bunch of different things and doing each of them equally badly. But it's a hard industry to say no in because you don't well, know when the opportunities are to, I mean, all these opportunities were fantastic. Obviously, Studio 10 was – like I'm, I'm very loyal. I'm actually not – I certainly look like a media whore, but I'm, I'm actually very much a creature of habit. And so I've sort of been with news, you know, for well over a decade anyway. I've uh, been with 10 for years and years and years. Um, but then to get offered a, an FM radio drive slot, you sort of be crazy to yeah. – um, and even if it turns out I'd never actually done it before, and it was it was almost ridiculously cruel to you know the art of radio that I was forced <laughs> upon it. You know, it's like so this person who's never really done radio before and sort of thrust in with this bloke he's never met before, 
to suddenly take over this drive show, which you which had, was my which yeah we had we had done that were, show before you guys um, popped and in. You yeah. were actually good at it, <laughs> and, and I sort of had no idea what I was doing. I was doing it with someone, a, a lovely bloke. Were uh, you Sydney, who, Melbourne? Different, yeah, who, yeah, and we were in different gosh, cities. Yeah, that's a um, yeah. They can throw you in the deep end from time right. to time. And, yeah, and if I'd you know, and if I'd really sort of properly thought about it, maybe it would have been different or better but it just seemed really strange like it's just it was, it was almost just like star trek or something or mm. doctor who or something you just suddenly teleported into this completely foreign environment this completely strange planet and you go oh what do i do and you yeah. just sort of try to blend in and try to <laughs> yeah. look at what everyone else is doing you think all right i'll try and do that too and that seems really yeah it's nerve-wracking and so it's fair to say it had um mixed results um <laughs> i don't know if, it certainly wasn't a raging success, but I don't know if it was too disastrous. Do you feel like you're a specific, like you've been a journalist for a long time, but you've also been doing Studio 10 for a long time. You're certainly a, like just a, a part of the furniture. It feels like that show's been on for ages. Oh, yeah, and, it's, and, it, and it does. And it kind of, this, the show is actually exactly as old as my firstborn child. Which is nice. Oh, um, obviously, I, I love the show more than the child. Naturally, the child doesn't pay naturally. Um, but do you feel like a TV person now, or do you, or still feel no, like a newspaper uh, journalist? Well, I've, I've always, I've always felt about the show is such good fun, and it feels like such a, a lucky break to be able to to do this for a living. It's I've, pretty incredible the combination, I think, because it is really hard to put people together on television or anything. But the combination of you guys, it's a bit of a like delightful sort of. Yeah. Oh wow, that's just that just works. Well, so that's right. I think it's I think it's very unusual um, in the TV industry to have yeah. a show where people don't have to pretend to like each exactly. other. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we're very lucky that 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 has happened. So I suppose yeah, maybe it, it's very hard to find that combination. But mm. once you do, everything else becomes very, very easy. And I've always felt, and if, you know, my beloved new employers at CBS are listening to this, <laughs> please don't take it literally. <laughs> but it, it feels sort of criminal almost that we're being paid to do something that is so much fun and doesn't feel like real work. So I've sort of, in a way, I've never sort of allowed myself to feel like I'm just a TV guy because I, I almost think, Oh, I don't want to get used to this. Yeah, you know, I'm always thinking, well, this this is too good to last. But that's when you know, you know it's so good because when you get, either you could be paid a million dollars, and when it's bad, oh, it's real bad, and well, you that, still that, don't feel like you another five million dollars would exactly make right. it any better. I feel, I feel a lot like the um, the Opus Day Catholic who has to keep wearing the horsehair <laughs> vest because I don't want to get too used to. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to get too used to to doing something that. Um, is sort of so much fun and think, wow, this is just great. Too good to be true. What do you, what do you reckon is the best and the worst thing about the industry? Um, I mean, I just love it so much. It's hard for me to even name something that is the worst. I suppose a colleague once said to me, joking, the role of the media is to cause harm. The worst thing for a journalist is a slow news day, a day in which nothing happens. But for most people, that's actually the best kind of day. Mm. It's a day when life just continues on in its own boring way. Mm. And in all news, there's an inherent kind of negative bias. Like you don't say, if you're coming home from school one day, uh, you don't run in and tell your mum, saying, hey, mum, guess what? A car just drove past and it didn't hit anything. Mm. So, you know, all news in a sense is going to be bad news. And, and, and so and, we end up trading in devastation also, almost. Well, you trade in devastation mm. and then you also then try to transform that devastation. And part of the struggle is to try and find the hope in the devastation or the mm. redemptive qualities in unthinkable tragedy. 
You also, I mean, the other interesting thing is when you cover a story and you see it played out and then you sort of, everybody moves on and forgets about it. But then the people who lived that story, who gave their stories at the time, which made our jobs easier, then go on and have all number of of situations in their life that are impacted by that moment in time that they never get on, they they never get on with or get over. And you, you sort of, it's, it's important, I think, to be reminded of that kind of stuff because it's easy for people, not just to work in the media but people who read the news to be very very fired up and emotional about Mm. something and then just completely pass it by because the news moves so quickly you're just on to the next tragedy on to the next thing and it's sort of um, it's sad sometimes to think oh gosh there are people whose whole lives have been changed by this one single moment that we cared about for 48 hours yeah i think that that is certainly true and uh but i think in that sense that the media is in a way, no different to the public. And I think you see, I mean, you see it now on sort of social media where you have this incredibly rapid cycle of things that one minute are the most outrageous thing in the world and, uh, you know, incredibly offensive and uh, incredibly horrible and how can we possibly sleep at night? And then the next minute, almost literally sometimes, the next minute, the next day, just completely nothing. And the other thing is for those life-changing events that are really traumatic, uh, I've got quite a bit of experience in this from both sides is that sometimes the media can actually play a really positive healing role in Mm. um in someone's darkest hour sometimes frankly the surrealness of a huge amount of public attention can distract from the horror of the actual incident yeah somehow sometimes it can stop people from being isolated and alone and it can often help people channel their grief into good works mm. um, I guess it gives you a chance to tell your story too it which is important. so it's, it's cathartic mm. um, it, it exposes you to enough other people and enough goodwill that maybe it somehow slightly ameliorates the raw acute horror mm. of what has happened just to you yeah I mean the, the most horrible thing of any tragedy is, is this why me why mm. my son it, it's so incredibly specific often so just cruelly random and there is no meaning of it whatsoever and sometimes maybe the only sort of healing gauze is a whole bunch of other people all saying you are not alone very true what do you think's the best thing about the business well look it might be that as well yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> that for all the harm that we're obliged to report on and all the bad news that we sort of have a duty to spread that with that comes almost a human drive to find some good in it and if you can find good in the worst of things, that's all we'll we sort of right. need to do to keep rolling on as a, a species. That and the swearing. I really like the swearing. <laughs> when are you allowed to swear? Well, not on air, but no. <laughs> in the office. Afterwards. There are no there are no more sweary places than media offices oh, of all very oh, like no. all variables, all the papers, the radio. Radio is the worst, I reckon. Did you notice that? You just can oh, say some things that would get you in an HR meeting, like quick smart. It is just yeah, that's right. And quick smart is not the word. Though. No, no it, it is just uh, it is magnificent. I've heard phrases. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just the funniest, the funniest lines of all time I've heard in newsrooms. It makes you unfit for real that. life. Um, right, we're wrapping up. Final five questions. Your yeah. biggest regret? Uh, not becoming a country music star. 
I'm dying to hear so you time. on the keys now oh, or something. Man, you should hear I, me. I feel like you're taking me for a ride. No, 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 but that's actually the name of one of my songs. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're taking me. I uh, really feel like you're lying to me. I can't, I just can't no, pick we'll it with just, this. We'll just have to find We'll have out. to wait and see. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, your dream gig. Well, I'd be on Studio 10. Naturally. <laughs> well, it kind of sort of, I suppose. It, it literally is. This, I'm, it doesn't I'm, get I'm much not, better than it, this. You've got good hours, does, good team. It does not get much better than this. Yeah. If anyone out there is listening to me, if any of my bosses are listening to me, please just let this go on forever. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, it, there's a lot that's great about a job like that. Um, uh, and, you know, especially just, because it just, I think it, it eats into, or, or not eats into, but like, is a great way for you to express all of your skills that you've that you've accumulated, but in it's a nice of you to call them skills. Well, they are skills, <laughs> but in a fun environment. Well, I, th- I think it's it's also more that like for any um, for any narcissistic journalist, uh, <laughs> there is just no greater <laughs> idea of heaven than for someone to pay you to sit around and talk shit yeah. while other people listen. That's true. I mean, that, <laughs> that is gold. That is gold. Is there a big idea yet that you've yet to get up? Is there a book in you? Is there a... Yeah, there is one, uh, maybe a TV series that I would like to make, and which I've sort of tried to pitch here and there and just and, and people have run a mile from it. And I'm, I'm not sure if it can even be said. It is... Something don't give it away. I won't I don't give it wanna... away, but it's, it's something very, very, very taboo. And I found it's even more taboo than all the other things that also make people. We're not talking about, you know, politics, religion, or the weather. Okay, right. But yeah, and I, and I but, but but I think it's actually the true story. Got legs. Society. Okay, all right. I'm looking forward to seeing that on our screens at some point when a very uh, a risky, <laughs> a, ri- a, ri- a risk, what's the opposite of risk averse? Or, uh, or risque. <laughs> risque uh, TV Or, or maybe it's just a really dumb idea. Right, we well, could be that. The guys at Channel 10 are like, can you stop yeah. pitching that idea to yeah. us? We're not making it's it. Actually, what's that on email? <laughs> if you weren't doing this as in working in media, what would you be doing? Well, I would probably be um, sitting around playing the piano, wondering why the phone hadn't rung, <laughs> wondering why I hadn't made it, and wondering why, even though I wrote my first girlfriend a song called Ivanhoe Working Class Hero, <laughs> oh, she wow. still didn't want to go out with me. Just lucky you got this gig. Uh, and finally, your advice to pe- people wanting to get into the business. Just do it. Just say yes. Say yes. Every chance you get, say yes. Get all the experience you can. Meet all the people you can, listen to them, and above all else, do not be afraid to ask the stupid questions. Yes, very good advice. And on that, I shall let you and your dreaded lurgy go home and get some rest. Rachel Corbett, has been an <laughs> honour to share my lurgy with you. Oh, hang on, that came out. <laughs> Thank no. you, Joe. <laughs> Thanks, Rach. Love your work. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for joining me for my chat with Joe Hildebrand. If you are enjoying the show, I would love it if you would share it with people, put it on your social media or jump into iTunes or wherever you listen to this show to leave a review. Just like lovely Natty Jack, Tom Ibbett and Queen Batman did. Thank you so much for your reviews. I'm sending you a big audio hug. Coming up next week, I'm going to be chatting to the lovely Hamish McDonald. Not only is he a delightful, delightful person, but he is also one of the 
smartest, most well-travelled, most experienced journalists that I know quite often at the Sunday Project when we are trying to work out what is happening in some place like Syria. He is the man that we go to to ask all of the questions. But not every story that he has covered in his time has been what you would describe as hard-hitting journalism. And he talks about one of those stories that made him think, hmm, maybe this isn't for me. I knew when I was in Prague sitting in a bathtub full of beer doing a piece to camera about bathing in beer that this really was not the right (laughs) job for me. I hope to see you for that chat next week on You've Got to Start Somewhere. 